Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, me and the uh, lovely Joanne were up in the San Francisco this weekend, my first time there. Everyone's pissed at me because I lived in L.A. for like 12 years, and they're like, you haven't been there before, and it was a blast. And what's cool about it was, you know, a lot of people bitch about Facebook, you know, how people always vent and talk crap and all that stuff. Well, it was good for me because through Facebook, I hooked up with my first neighbor when I moved here to L.A. in Hollywood. He's living up there now. Hooked up to went to the 50th birthday party of a guy I graduated high school with, who I have not seen since 1990, and hooked up with my cousin and his two daughters for brunch that I have not seen since like 1985. So it was a good trip. So that was good. I think I'm going to be going back. Anyway, I got to tell you a quick shout out before I bring my guest on. Uh, WLFR in Stockton, Stockton State College, my alma mater. I guess now it's called Richard Stockton College. Starting to carry me. So if you guys are listening, uh, thanks. This is pretty cool. You know, I graduated 28 years ago when you could drink on campus and do whatever you want. I'm sure it's changed a lot. But enough about that. We have a great guest today. I'm going to tell you one thing. This guy, his name, like I always thought my brother had a great name. My brother's Thomas Spencer Cooper III. Great name. But this guy, I mean, what a name. Our guest is Mick Betancourt. That is like the best name. How you doing, Mick? I'll take it, man. Thanks for having me on the show. No problem. No, that, that's like, is, is Mick is Mick for short for Mike or is it? I mean, how, yeah, my dad was Big Mickey and I was Little Mickey, but we were both named Michael and Mick's the nickname of it's a Chicago, you know, Dicks, Richard, Mick's Michael. Right. So, uh, yeah, man, it was. You know, it's funny you say that. I'm Irish and Puerto Rican. Bedcourt's the Puerto Rican side. My father's Puerto Rican. My mother's Irish. But I cha- when I first started doing stand up comedy, no one could say. Or spell my name correctly. See, that's that's weird because you know it's funny. I always sat there, and you know we forget this. And what I mean, when I used to do host open mics in Philadelphia, and you know do comedy, my name is pretty easy. But even me, I was at a wedding, and I was in the <laughs> wedding party, and the guy, you know, they announced your name, and he said Steve Copper, and I, I just looked at him, and I, after the wedding, I wouldn't say anything, but I walked up to the guy, and I had yeah. a few cocktails on me, and I'm like, Are you stupid? I mean, Cooper and Co- I mean, they're not even close. I mean, it's yeah, not yeah. you know yours. I mean, I would I would understand it because it sounds just how it looks. Betancourt, you know. I mean, that's I pronounce it right, I believe. Yeah, yeah, Betancourt. Yeah, yeah it's exact. It's Bet and, and court. court. Yeah, and so people would screw it up. Oh, all the time. So much so that I changed my name to my last name to Thomas. Not you know officially changed right. it, but just you know I thought well this might be easier because I'm just starting out. I have no name recognition. You know right. it's just like I want the show to go as smoothly as possible. Right. <laughs> so no one they'd say Batancourt, it would be spelled wrong in the ads for the shows and the papers, and so I finally get, I think it was like one of my first local headlining spots where there was an actual marquee, and I'm right. like oh I'm gonna I brought my camera I'm gonna take because I would drive by the sign all the time and you know when you're a young comic you're like my name's gonna be on oh, the yeah. billboard sometimes <laughs> so I I I, the, I changed it to Thomas which is my grandfather's first name so it was Mick Thomas and I show up and on the marquee is Mick. T O M A S. Oh God, Tomas, like, that's so like, funny. And I'm like, if they can't spell Thomas right, I might as well use yeah, my own name. Exactly. Well, that's funny because it happened to me. I used to host a show at Flappers called Cooper's Angels at all female comics, and I walked in one time. It was Copper's Angels. Then it was Cooper's Angles, and then it was Cooper's Angelus. And I'm like, Angels. Yeah. Okay, this is not a hard spelling. <laughs> I know. It's you. You figure it's like a what. 11 letters and an apostrophe. You know, it's like 12 letters. I mean, it's crazy. So, no, you're from Chicago. Yeah. Now, what made you, you now, did you start doing stand-up in Chicago or? Yeah, 17 years ago. This is year 17 for me and um, just started doing the open mics, looking in the paper. You know, it always enjoyed making people laugh, was the class clown and 
started really watching a lot of stand-up comedy and thought, wow, I, I, if I could do that, that would be amazing. With no, like, I want to be famous. or right. I, no, I, that, At this time, you know, there were no tax incentives in Chicago. There were no TV shows shooting there. It was a blue-collar town, just like it is now. And, you know, there were theaters like Second, uh, Second City, which was more improv, or Steppenwolf. So there was great stuff happening there, but it was that was the... That was the uh, pinnacle, you know what I mean? Like, those were the best shops in town, and then there were open mics, and there were off-loop theaters and stuff, so I thought, well, I'll go just try it. And that's, you know, there's a paper called The Reader, which is like the LA Weekly, and it's got kind of all the alt entertainment scene in there, and just went up and bombed the first, you know, three months. See, that's weird, because I was talking to some comics the other day, and and, uh, most comics usually do good their first time, and then just bomb. Like, and then they don't, like I did it when I first went up in Philly, you know, I got a great set and you get cocky. You're like, oh yeah, sure. you, know, you think you're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do weekends here. And you have no clue that, you know, you did five minutes in front of, you know, and then you go back the second time and you just eat it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you just, dis- I, like, I just disappear for like a month and a half because it just shattered me. But it's weird, because yeah, because Chicago, I've had a lot of guests from Second City. I've had a ton of the improv people. And there, right, there wasn't a lot of stand-ups. Even like Adam, you know Adam McKay. Yeah, he, the not director, personally, but, but yeah, well, he, yeah. he was a stand-up in Philly. We did stand-up together. He moved to Chicago to write. He didn't even pursue stand-up when he went there. So it must have been, because you had what, you had Zanies? Was that the club? Or Yeah, I mean, when I started, there were three Zanies. Zanies Mount Prospect, which closed a year into my doing stand-up. Zanies Vernon Hills, and then downtown Zanies, and there was KJ Riddles on the south side. And then there were, you know, Chicago's a very segregated city they now they call it hyper segregation in uh political what is that political science in colleges but there were you know traditionally urban clubs which were all jokes all jokes aside and then the cotton club and i and then the hot house had an open mic as well so i would i would go up anywhere i could so traditionally those rooms were mostly for black and latino comics but i didn't give a shit i just wanted stage time and i'm puerto Rican, even though i look right you know white i'm Puerto Rican, so that none of that bothered me, you know. And I grew up in a black house, so that that kind of racial stigma had no power over me. So I was like, man, I, you know, I, I want stage time, and if you guys have an open mic, I'd like to do a spot, you know. So I approached everything with humility to get time, but then that kind of bizarre ego you need starting out performing anything because right. the odds are the odds are so insane, and the stakes are so bizarre in the beginning that you have to be delusional to start it has to be all passion and just want blatant and and, and unending want <laughs> otherwise like you just said you do one set it doesn't go well you're done well i tried and that was the most horrific thing i've ever experienced and i'm never going to do that again <laughs> so, yeah. but you do it again well it's funny i notice that now because i mean i don't really do stand-up much anymore i mean i did it from on the road from 88 to 95. Got out of business forever and just recently got back into it. And when I was, go- I was in a long distance. You can't dis- never get away. Yeah, well, I was in a long distance. Just- it's true. When I, was, I was in a long distance relationship. My girlfriend moved out here, but I was going back to right outside Philly where I grew up. And I would sit there and I'd go back on, on weekends and I would call the bookers and say, hey, can I? And yeah, they'd yeah, they yeah. book me. And I'd go, right. Then I'm doing these feature spots and I'm used to screwing around in LA doing seven minutes. And they're yeah. like, okay. And it's like, okay, I gotta do 30. And I'm yeah. sitting there going, well, I have 30, but I always forget stuff. And I sat there and yeah, you came back into it. And now you I can don't. can never quit. Well, see, for me now, I just, I don't like the LA comedy scene because it's always, it's always like seven minutes. So, and it's like, and then you go to these coffee houses. I don't do that. But these guys, I host a show at this bar in Burbank. And half time there's nobody in there, but it's just it's Tuesday nights. It's just fun. Yeah, sometimes it does eight minutes, but a lot of these comics, if I get like four people or five people, they're like, "This was great." I'm like, "This sucked." I'm sitting there going, "I'm going, man," and I always feel bad for the comics. And they're like, "Oh, we're cool. We'll just perform another front of comics." I'm like, 
that's understandable, but some of these guys are doing it like four times a night, and it's like you can never build your act because you don't. Well, there is, and it's a different thing, man, than when you and I started, and it's a different thing out here, just like it's different in New York. You know, I mean, you can't the act that you're building out here. You're competing. Look, when you do, when you're in a town where there's no show business, then whatever the thing that you're doing, acting, writing, directing, theater, is for that. Right. You know, it's not to get something else. We're out here, you know, say some some actor has a bad pilot season, their agent or manager will say, go try stand-up to get a little notoriety because you only need seven minutes out here. Where the old club system was, you need 15 minutes to host, 30 minutes to feature, and 45 minutes to an hour to, to headline. Right. And those were hard numbers. Like, they were terrifying numbers to me for years. Like, what? 45 minutes? Same for me when I first started co-headlining oh, some man. shows. I'd yeah. be going, wait a second. And I was sitting there going, wait, I'm going to do 45. And in your mind, you have it, but you 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 put that block on, well, what if they don't like me? Oh, and, and if, yeah. And if you're a perfectionist, you sit there, and if you're doing your bit, and then you get a lull for like two minutes, you get, you hate to say you get rattled, but you do. Sure. And it's not that you're rattled because you you don't think you're funny. It's just rattled because you're like, wait, what am I doing wrong? Why aren't these people? This stuff works. It's the old thing, you know. Yeah. This stuff works. I was just the first show. I just killed this show. They hate me. And I, I did that when I went back to Philly. I went to this place, the Comedy Works in Bristol. And I'll tell you, man, that Friday night, bunch of drunk idiots hated me. I was even doing Philadelphia Eagles stuff. How about the Cowboys suck? And they weren't even buying that. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and I didn't see this guy who forever who booked it. He booked me years ago. And he's probably thinking, God, I guess, did he just stop completely for all these years? I mean, you know how it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I don't think I ever stopped. I, my The amount of sets that I did certainly slowed down. You know, I have a room uh, called Radford Hall that we do a show every four to six weeks depend you know because we bring a sound guy in we throw up the pa system it's we've had some of the best comics in the world roll through there and no industry and no other comics hanging out in the back room we get about 250 people per show it's amazing and so that was kind of like my room that i collaborate with about four other people to keep going so i always had a spot but you know you mentioned flappers flappers has been a great club for me they'll they'll say hey uh come by saturday night do 45 in the yoohoo room and you just don't get spots like that right. out here. So I'm like, absolutely, you know. And sometimes it's for three people, and sometimes it's for seventy, which that room holds. And right. for me, I, I would rather perform just for the. I did stand up for 15 years. I made people laugh. I got a great response. People really liked what I do. Everybody but me. I didn't like the material that I was doing. A lot of people. A lot of people do that. A friend of mine named Jeff Martyr, who was a huge national headliner, did two microphones on the left and right side of his brain. Just quit the business because he said. I had nothing to say. I was like, dude, you had your own HBO special. You were, you were in a Tonight Show. You got Couch with Carson. You hosted two shows on NBC. And he's like, yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't have anything to say. I, I was tired. And that's, I think that happens a lot as you are in the business for a long time. You get tired and you don't, it's like you sit there and you go, why am I talking about this? Well, yeah. You know, why am I doing this? Well, I enjoy making people laugh, which ultimately is what it comes down to. And then I think as you grow as a performer, you're like, well, is this the best that I can do? When I was taking classes at Second City, they always said play to the to the um, to the height of your to the top of your intelligence, and that was always the goal. I mean, did they have blue comedy and easy jokes in their reviews? And it, yeah, but that that's, if you set the bar there, and then I said, you know what? <clears throat> I'm being kind of lazy here because I know it works. I'm not pushing myself as a writer. I'm not pushing myself as a performer, and I got to that crossroads that you just said, which might not be this guy's crossroads, but for me, my crossroads was. Am I going to walk away from this? 
And if I do, I'm going to feel like I quit and I'm, and I'm going to walk away unsatisfied. So what if I commit to just doing the material that I want to do and figure out how to do that? And I was inspired by a guy named Kyle Kinane, who's a huge comic right now. And he started a couple of years after me in Chicago. But he has a great thing where he goes, look, and he tells the audience this. He does a joke intentionally that's a little divisive. It's not like a shock joke. It's a real joke from him. But it's a joke he consciously knows the whole audience is not going to like. And he does it on purpose in the first, like, three minutes of his act. He lets it, you know... He says it, there's a lot of laughs and some groans, and he goes, I got to tell you folks, I'm looking for loyalty, not for numbers. Which and is, that blew my mind, because I started, and I'm assuming when you started as well, we came up in a weird time where that weird 80s thing was dying, and that was like, make everybody laugh, like destroy the room, and, and you don't have to do that. Kyle saying was this is this is the material I like I'm going to perform it to the top of my ability and the people that like it you'll follow me because you know I'm not selling you fake goods and it just I don't know it was this weird well, click in my brain where I'm like yeah that's how it should be well that is true because you know you, you talk about that after the boom that was like you know you would do a bit I remember doing a bit and someone said to me the owner who was a friend of mine said what are you doing that intellectual crap for you know, this is the blue collar, you know, and it's like, well, I w that's why you booked me. But it was the thing, thing like a guy would be a total hack ripping everybody off, and we go, what? We'd be sitting there, the other acts on the show, be going to the owner, why? Why are you booking him? I know he's stealing everything, but look, he's killing. And yeah, that was yeah. the mentality back then. Yeah, it was yeah. Like, and basically, back then, you were more glorified uh, drink sellers. I mean, if you oh, killed, sure. I mean, if you had a comic, you know, they always say about Ollie Joe Prater or whatever, that would just drink shots and drink, and the crowd would drink shots. Well, you know what? Of course the club's going to have him back in because he's getting hammered. They're selling booze and overpriced booze, and it's weird like that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, look, it, we all know this. It's a business. Right. So the <coughs> excuse me, the clubs have to protect their business, and then they have to get people in that are a draw and that, that uh, sell the audience, you know, fill seats. And then the, the comic then must say, what do they want to do to perform in certain clubs? Although I have to tell you through podcasting, I have a, a podcast called The Nick Betancourt Show. It's amazing because there's no, I get no studio notes. I get no network notes. It's, it's, uh, I just want it to be honest. And when things were funny, let them be funny. And when they were serious, let them be serious. Get great guests on, not reinventing the wheel, not rocket science. But the relationship that I have with the audience is amazing. And it's just me and them, and they can email me, and I email them back. They'll come out and see shows, and I look at other really successful comedians that have really great podcasts they're no longer doing clubs now they'll go to a music venue that's traditionally dark on a monday and they'll take the door and they'll leave the venue the bar and they're walking away with a substantial amount of money that they would have need to do nine shows morning radio at a regular club and they're in and out in one night just from their fans right it's great it's yeah, it's so funny, and it's just the way it's going. It's just the the industry's changing a lot, and that's what's. Yeah. Uh, but it's cool because, like, I mean, for me, I'm doing for the first time May 29th at uh, Bob's Espresso in North Hollywood, it's owned by Damone from Fast Times Richmond High. I'm doing my show live with John Capelos, who was in the, the Breakfast Club and all that. Great guy, and I said, "Hey, man, you know, and we're doing it for free. I just want to do it and get it on tape." But mm -hmm. I'm sitting there going, "You know what? This is the way to go. I'd rather sit here and talk to him for an hour. People will come out who like him." And they and then we're doing a Q and A after, and he might he has an album, might play a song, but that's the way it's going. I think people are just 
tired, well, especially in LA, I think they're just tired of going to a comedy show and seeing 12 acts. You know, everywhere you go, it's 12 acts and there's eight minutes or seven minutes and some of them suck, but they can bring people so they get put on a show. And so they go and they watch this and they're it's, they're not entertained. Yeah. Like my show, you may get laughs. My or show, they think that's what comedy right. is. And they're not used to, you and know. And you lose them for right. at least two years before exactly. they go back to a club, you know. Exactly. So, so you were doing comedy in Chicago. Yeah. And now what made you leave Chicago? Did you just say I have to go? I have to, I'm not going to advance myself, or I'll tell you a crazy story. I um, I start I started comedy pretty much at the same time with a kid named John Roy, great headlining comic. We were roommates, and um, we just wanted to be funny, you know. And uh, the Chicago Comedy Festival, this guy named Dan Carlson, started this thing called the Chicago Comedy Festival. No, we didn't even know what industry was. Right. Like they were flying in. It was insane, man. So it was a festival and like there were shows and there was a bill, like a playbill of like this theater's going to have this guy. And I think Don Rickles came in and um, Shelly Berman. I mean, it was bonkers. <laughs> yeah. You know, we were all knuckleheads that were doing these independent shows and all these guys were coming in and they're like, there's agents coming in. And we're like, ooh, what do they do? Like, we just like, <laughs> we didn't know anything. Because back we then, was, we were close. We just went and did our... We yeah. performed, and we didn't think about, you know, we our thing was, oh, wait, if we can get booked to be an MC at this club and make $150 for a weekend, oh, yeah. we're living large. They give you free drinks, top exactly. shelf, not even well? <laughs> oh, my God, I hit the, the drunken lottery. <laughs> so, you know, I, I volunteered as a producer, because at this time I had a, a, my own room, and I, I, I um, helped produce the shows, and then... Um, the last night, Sunday night, before everyone was going to fly back Monday morning, there was like a best of the fest at Zany's downtown. And uh, everyone was there, and everyone was toasty. And the show was going like... And, and, and he was just picking, hand-picking people to come up and do sets. It was just really cool. Like, and the, But the show's going longer and longer, and I'm like, I'm not going to get picked to go do a set. And I really went above and beyond helping out barking getting people in the rooms promoting and then i was one of like the fresh faces of that fest i realized that the show is going to be wrapped up so i go up to the guy who put the festival together and i go listen man you got to give me a set here after i mean i really worked my ass off for you and every this room's packed with you know and most of the shows i did for whatever reason industry wasn't even there right right i said this is an opportunity for me man you got to do me a solid i really I really felt like I, I, I bled a little for you, man, for this thing. And he's like, no, sorry, the show's already like two and a half hours. And I'm like, well, and then I got, a, I had to go a little Chicago. I'm like, listen, <laughs> you're going to, if you don't put me up on this stage, then when you get off, when the show's over, you're going to have to deal with me in a way I, I think you really don't want to. So let's meet in the middle on this. I go, give me two minutes. So he's like, fine, done. Two minutes, then I'm ending the show. So we go. He goes up on stage. He goes, all right, I better know how the show was going to end, but a special guest coming on, you know, he he did it right. He was cool. He did me a solid. He brought I did two minutes. But now I have no idea what I'm going to do in two minutes. I just right. fought for this thing. I had no idea what I was going to do now. <laughs> so, like, two days ago, I thought of this totally dumb throwaway joke. I go, I only have two minutes. So I went up. I did it. For whatever reason, the stars were lined up, and it just destroyed the room. Just like, and I just walked off with that. So really, I did like 40 seconds. Right. It was so surreal, man. I get off the stage. People are just handing me cards. And I'm like, wow. And I get to the back of the room, and I've got 
agent from Paradigm and casting director from Mad TV, all because I fought for that opportunity, you know, and I went up and I threw caution to the wind and I did this thing. So now everyone flies out and the whole excitement of this thing is leaving. I'm wondering, man, what do I do? You know, so the guy from Paradigm calls, he goes, listen, you got to come out to LA. And I'm like, oh, because in Chicago at this point, I can get up now in any room that I want. Right. I'm not necessarily, you know, I can play clubs in the Midwest and make it home to go to work because I haven't, you know, I still have a day job. I was a truck driver. And uh, he goes, listen, you want to play for the Pittsburgh Pirates. You got to move to Pittsburgh. Like, you're not in the business. You're doing, you're, you're performing, but you're not in the business. The business is out here. And I go, all right, well, listen, man, if I want to move, I'll do that. Fine. My long-winded answer to your short question. 9-11 happened. I was raised by immigrants, and I hung out with a lot of immigrants who always told me since I was a little kid, this is the best country in the world. You can achieve your dreams in this country. That's not the case everywhere else. You can do it, but you got to work twice as hard as the hardest, person, hardest working person you know, and anything is possible. And I'm not, I don't want to personalize that tragedy, but when I watched that second plane go in, I had an epiphany that I had been playing it safe my entire life, and I did not have an easy life up to this point you know i had had some rough breaks and some insane things happened but i thought um this sounds so cool but i'm being honest with you america is great and anything is possible and you know they were saying the planes i said as soon as these planes get up i'm out i'm going to la and i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna do this thing this is the land of opportunity and i'm not gonna let anything stop me and then as soon as the planes came up i can't i didn't know anybody i had that one guy that one agent right I didn't know anybody. I mean, when I got on the plane, I was going to walk through first class and just go, hey, uh, is anybody here in the entertainment business? Like, because I thought if you're in first class going to L.A., clearly right, yeah. <laughs> you got to be a movie producer, right? <laughs> so, you so see, you get out of here. Now, where do you move? I always wonder where people move the first time. Because it's so funny. When I moved up here, I was living in San Diego with my ex-crazy wife. And uh, I was out of the business. I would do some shows down there, like at the Comedy Store on 4th and B or whatever. But I, I was working. I was I was commuting. Not commuting. I would come up here on the weekdays and go to back there on weekends. And that's my neighbor I saw in San Francisco. He knew a guy who was a good friend of mine I'd known from when I lived in Vegas. And I moved right behind... Uh, on, a, on, on Sunset and Highland, before it was all built up, there used to be an old like school McDonald's, and and it was like it was old. And right behind there was this. It was Leland Avenue. I remember it was like three eighty seven or five eighty seven Leland. And we, I had this little studio, and I only paid three hundred and eighty seven dollars a month, and it was insane. And we would walk to the powerhouse to get drinks, and we I would drive. Sure. I was waiting tables in Beverly Hills at the Planet Hollywood. So we I drive there in a the day. And it was just cool. And everyone, I, I didn't know any of the area, and they told me this. And now, if you came, if I came, I, mean, I live in Burbank, which you know, and I know where you say I think the Studio City. Yeah. that's where you gravitate towards, somewhere where you're going to enjoy it. But when you come up, you have no idea where you're living. Oh yeah, yeah. You go, oh, this. It's not like you're from Chicago. I grew up near Philadelphia. I mean, I lived in the suburbs. But if you go into Philadelphia, you know when it's a bad neighborhood. Here, you're driving through Hollywood or North Hollywood. You don't. The only if if you start seeing the signs, if you see check cashing places and the signs in a different language, there's a there's a chance you might not fit in. But you don't know. You can drive to like the worst neighborhood, and it looks nice. Yeah, I mean it's it's. I lived. Uh, I had a rented Kia <laughs> that I got by the airport, and so I lived on my friend's floor out here. He was a business guy. Uh, he let me live on his about every other week. I could sleep on his floor. And then on the weekends, I'd stay in my car or I'd try to find some place to, to sofa surf until I got an apartment. And I did that for six months. Wow. And then um, 
my my manager, I wound up getting a manager. He let me sleep on his sofa. It was one of the guys that I met at the festival. He let me sleep on his sofa probably for two weeks, and that was in Silver Lake. Or no. Yeah. No, Los Feliz. Los Feliz. And, uh, yeah, I'd walk down to the 7-Eleven on um, Sunset and near Vermont, and there'd be like three or four pimps hanging out there. And then I would talk to them and get a lowdown on the city and what was happening? You know, first I thought I was a cop. Right. I'm like, listen, I'm from Chicago. I just moved here. I want to I want to tell jokes, and uh, <laughs> it was just totally insane. And there was a shooting over there. They I was in a, the there was two Seven Elevens within like eight, eight blocks of each other, and our, his apartment was in the middle of the two. So I would alternate. Which one was across from House of Pies, and the other one was so on Vermont. Uh, yeah, like Vermont and Franklin. And one day, just I hear these pop, 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 and glass break. Someone got into a fight and they just shot into the 7-Eleven I was in, hit the floor there. That was crazy. Call the cops. And then they checked everybody out. <laughs> like, it was just, it was insane. Wow. I mean, L.A. to me was a culture clash uh, coming from Chicago. It's not. It's, yeah, it's crazy. So so you started doing stand-up here? I know you, you've gotten to writing. Now, how, yeah. did, how did you segue? I mean, you're doing stand-up here. It must be different because you're coming in. I mean, did the agents and the managers help you get stage time? No, no, it was they. They, they it was that was short money for them. I mean, they they were only concerned with television and movies and festivals to obviously get me television and movies. So when I moved here, I did Late Friday, which was a stand-up show. Pretty, I, I got the call eight days here. And I okay. thought, wow, man, this is great. I got booked on Late Friday. I'm going to do stand-up for the first time on TV. And then 2003, I did the Montreal Comedy Festival. Then I did Premium Blend. It was great. And then my my son was born and I'm like wow premium blend pays like two grand and it's this great comp you know doing stand-up on Comedy Central is great but it doesn't pay and I once my son was born I'm like I can't go do the road 50 weeks out of the year and leave my wife with this newborn so I have to figure out how I can still do something creative and stay here instead of moving back because we moved all the way out here we got to give it a shot so I, I booked a dramatic pilot as an actor as a, um, I think it was I was a guest star on it, but not as a regular. So you know, it was a nice chunk of change, but not you know life changing. And it was it was um, a one off. So it was that amount of money, chopped that in half, and that's what I. So I think I was left with like eight grand for the year. That's, but it was a nice. The pilot wound up not going. I talked to the writer of that pilot. I met him on set. Cool guy. He and I wind up going to lunch when the pilot doesn't move forward. And I say, listen, I've got an idea for a show. I'm not trying to pitch it to you. I'd just like to get your insight into whether I should commit to this because I don't really know anything about that world. And he goes, I love that idea. I'll go out with it. Let's go out with it together. I didn't even know. I had never right. pitched shows. <laughs> you know? I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah. So we wind up pitching it. And at this time, I'm on my way home. Like the money's gone. The eight grand's gone. You know, we're nine months past the pilot. All the credit cards are maxed out. I got a one-year-old. Like it's almost two. It's time to go. Literally, corn dog Hollywood story. We sell that show. I got about a week left here in LA, and uh, that was my foot in the door in the dramatic writing. And since then, I've gone on. Uh, I've sold two shows to network television, and I've written on nine or like seven network shows and two cable shows. Well, now when you sold the shows, they didn't get picked up. They did not. No, they just ordered the script. The pilots were never shot. Were they bo both the all dramas? Both dramas. Yeah. But what was what was the great idea you had when you that first moment you told this guy? I mean, what sold this guy on the idea? Because it's everyone has an. I always say everyone has an idea out here. It's yeah. like, Even like you know, even like you have priests have an idea and they act Jewish because <laughs> you can get ahead if you're Jewish. You know, it's like oh no, I'm not a priest. I'm a rabbi. You know, you got to buy yeah. this. You know, but I mean, I mean, how did you get the idea? How did you come up with the idea? Well, this particular show was um, 
it was the, the the premise was it was a kid who was raised by the head of the Irish mob in Chicago goes on to become a police officer that investigates basically everybody that he grew up with and they know he's a cop so it's not like this deep undercover thing they just know he's a cop but he legitimately went straight for his um his wife dies he's forced to raise his six-year-old on by himself he's a forklift driver basically at home depot and so his father-in-law who he did never really got along with because everyone knew this kid you know he went straight and just got a blue collar gig but when his wife died the father-in-law who was a a detective realized that the street's going to start calling this guy because there's not two incomes coming to the house. Right. And he's not going to want to drive a forklift for the rest of his life. And he knows he can make easy money on the street. So the father-in-law steps in and says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do solid. I'm going to get you out of the Chicago police department and you can finally change your life forever. But that means every friend you've ever had is going to hate you. And he goes, you either love your son or you love your friends. What do you like here? And so he, he does, he becomes a cop. Now, did they ever make a pilot with it? No. Okay, so it was just all yeah, it was just said. But that now, script got me. Um, you know, I co-wrote that with this with this other guy. So then I had to write my own script, a spec script after that, because he and I, I had no. Everyone loved this guy. He was a very successful writer. So they just thought I was like the street kid that that they brought on to punch up the dialogue. Right. You know, they okay. didn't know that I was an actual. Nor did I. You know, I was a new guy. I had to. Put in, the, you, put in the work. You had know? you written ever in your life, like when you were a kid or anything? Yeah, yeah, did you yeah. write a lot? I mean, did you always? Were you? Fi- I mean, not. I mean, I'm not saying because comedy is writing, but it's completely different when sure. you're in a comedy. You can write and you go, okay, wait a second, oh, do, 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 do. Yeah. okay, I can go see if it works. You know, okay, well, if it doesn't work, I take it out and act. Unless you're doing, you know, uh, no, it doesn't. Have, it doesn't have that much structure. You don't need a beginning in comedy. You need a, a good opening and a good closing, and in the middle you can just freewheel it. <laughs> and that's the truth. I mean, that's like I used to work with acts in Philly who were like who were great, but they could never really end up being that headlining spot because they never had a strong close. And this is different. I mean, this is when we were talking, the generation we are talking in the early, late 80s, early 90s, where everyone, you know, if you did the arms bit, crowd would go crazy. And as an actor, you're going, wait a second. I've seen, like, people call out people for being hacks. I've seen 50 acts do that arms bit, but and the crowds would love it. And yeah. so then you see some guy who was an amazing actor. There was a guy in Philadelphia named Grover Silcox, one of the most funniest people. And, uh, He's like, I don't have a good close. And he had the amazing opening, and he just, he could never get that national recognition because people were like, okay, because, you know, they're used to, boom, hey, here's lights. Okay, I'm going to do a magic trick. I'm going to dance. I mean, actually, I've seen headliners dance. Yeah, I'm yeah. Like, I'm like, wait a second, you're dancing to close the show? And it's just, you know, so that's the thing. But for writing to go serious writing, it must be completely different for you. I mean, what did you write when you were younger? Uh, I wrote uh, dramatic short stories. I wrote a couple plays, you know, none that were produced. But it's just, you know, I had always been, I've been writing longer than I've been doing anything else. Now, I just didn't know that there was an end game or that anybody would ever pay me. <laughs> but now, was anyone in your family creative? What led to yeah. your creativity? I mean, My uncle was a writer, is a writer. Um, he would show me stuff. He exposed me to all the great, you know, the classics and uh, Shakespeare. And, you know, I, I had a profound moment where... You know, I grew up really poor, and um, you know, if 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 if, I, if we wanted to play baseball, I needed a bat and a glove, and you, I needed all these things. You need things to go do the other things, you know. And then if you want to be a director, you need actors and a stage or cameras. And I need a pen and a piece of paper, and I could write, you know, um, the 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 rocks crunched under my foot on Mars. I could barely breathe through my spacesuit. Now all of a sudden, I'm on Mars. Right. And there's no there's no editor, there's no 
budget. There's no constraints. There's no parents. There's no teachers. There's nothing. It's me and the page, and I can do anything that I want. And that type of, that was very empowering to me coming from a very poor household because <coughs> I could just, you know, I couldn't draw the things that were in my head because I love to draw, but I could write them. So now, as, as a question for you, because uh, I, I do some writing too, and I start off the times when you wrote in a pen. I never, like I'm working on a book. It's a cookbook because I have a congestive heart failure. It's, I'm, I'm, I've, helped, it's, I've never been healthier, but it's, it's called Stop the Assault. And the A and the U are not Stop the Assault. It's cooking for one, 125 recipes basic stuff but I, when I was doing them when I was doing the intro like the of course recipes you just type on but when I write or anything else I use a pen and paper still do you still do that or do you sure. go straight to the computer well if I'm really you know look if I'm having a hard time just getting the work done and there's some attention issues and I leave my phone I have a little office that I rent I leave my phone I leave my computer and I have a yellow legal pad and you know I bring a couple pens and I sit down and force myself to handle it and work, you know, and give myself the freedom to write horribly just to get something out and then at least get some momentum going so that I can get to the good stuff. Yeah, because I always think a lot of people just go straight to the computer and I can't do that because my thing is your mind, unless you're like Evelyn, like one of these speed typers, yeah. your mind thinks so much. I mean, I write a lot, but I still, I'm like the worst typer. I mean, I sit there, I pretty much pack and, you know, do like that. Yeah. And your mind can't think as fast. I mean, when you're, when you're on a roll, if you sit there and you stop and you type, you lose your concentration. Yeah, yeah. Billy Gardell, who's a great comic and a pal of mine, turned me on to this writing program called Scrivener that, you, that a lot of comedians use because you can write everything and it'll break everything down in, into index cards and you can actually just move the cards. Okay. And then by moving the cards, it rewrites the whole document. It's See, that's, incredible. That's insane. Yeah, and it's like 30 bucks or something. See, I mean, it's unbelievable. So I've been using that a lot because I, too, am working on a, on a book right now. So, And that's really like my white whale because I've got 140 pages of just slug lines of stories. And now I'm like, how do I sift through this stuff and get this stuff done, you know? Now, when you're writing on a lot of – you're writing on dramas like Law & Order and all that, how would you – would you still be doing comedy at the time? And how does it, do you, it's like you have to actually be like two personas, like yeah. you're writing something heavy. You're, I mean, these shows you wrote are, are heavy. I mean, you know, you yeah. don't sit there and go, hey, I just watched Law and Order SVU. I'm going to go out and then do 20 minutes of dick jokes. You know, you know, <laughs> you know it's like, it, it must have been, it must have been, you have to do it back to live like your ma brain had to be like two different things going there. Yeah. At first it was, it was a lot easier you know, 10 years ago for whatever, you know, you get old a little bit and your brain wants to just kind of latch onto one thing. But even now, like I'll work in the writer's room, I'll get in at 10, we'll get out of there at six or seven. I'll race home, see the kids, have catch the end of dinner, put them to bed, then go out and do two shows like at Flappers where I'm doing, you know, 20 or 30 minute sets. And it's, I really have to be aware of going, not running from one thing to the next. Now I really have to take time and make a clear transition to go from one, all right, that way I was writing during the day. Let's get quiet for five minutes, going in front of the audience, performing, totally separate muscle, totally separate skill set, humility, you know, because I'm, I'm a little higher up the food chain and as a producer, so people listen to me all day very matter-of-factly because we have to keep the trains running on time right. on these productions that are, you know, anywhere between three and five million dollars an episode with 250 people that need to sometimes need direction and rewrites and whatever you know 
the audience at night does not see me as that guy. Right. <laughs> you know, so I still have to perform and do all of the things required that a performer does, and I love it. And I still go out and audition. I did a movie called Gangster Squad that came out um, probably about a year ago. That's or, with the uh, Sean Penn? Yeah. Yeah, because it's funny. I was uh, flying back from uh, Philly. I was on Virgin, and it was great because our flight they, it was delayed like, 30 minutes. They said, okay, free movies for everybody. So I'm like, it's so weird. I watched Wreck-It Ralph and then that. Like, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But both are good movies. They're but it's great both, movies, yeah. both so far oh, apart. yeah. And I love, I love the old gangster stuff. I mean, I mean it was maybe as a kid, you know, my father would put uh, The Untouchables on and Elliot Ness and just, you know, he, I mean, I knew that stuff. And then when The Godfather came on, and to me, just any gangster movie, yeah, it's yeah. just always just classic. Even like, you see the old like James Cagney, the Roaring Fifties or whatever, whatever it is, and when like he punches people, he he looks like he's doesn't even look like a punch. And, and you, but you sit there, and you you just still dig it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Check out a, the man, the man with a thousand faces, or the man of a thousand faces. It's a James James Cagney movie that he plays out of character, where he plays um. I can't even remember the guy's uh, name. The guy that did um, all of the monster faces. Uh, Vincent Price? No, no the, before Vincent Price. Boris Karloff? Okay, I'll have to check it out. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's an unbelievable movie. So you're doing comedy when you're back in the day and you start writing. What was your, your first, was your first gig to Black Donnelly's? Yeah. It? Okay, now what was it? First of all, was it a long process to get that job or would it sit there that you had to send scripts or did you just say, boom? No, it was a, you know, I was meeting a lot of people off of the, the heat is or the buzz, whatever industry slang term you want to use from the pilot that I had sold. But again, I, I co-wrote that with a really established writer. So it was very difficult for people to figure out what he wrote, what I wrote. Right. Um, so I went out on a ton of meetings. I probably met 30 people on the studio side, the network side, producers, a year went by, nothing, no work, no, didn't book a pilot. And then, um, you know, again, went out for writing, staffing season, meeting on shows. And to get that first job is very difficult because you're, you're not proven. You're not, nobody knows what you can do, what you're, you know, how competent you are, what's your grasp of story. You know, can you sit in a room full of people for 10 hours a day and not bulldog the room? Can you make a positive contribution? How do you take criticism? All these things that I had no idea were is what they were looking for in me while I was taking these meetings, you know? And then I met Bobby Maresco, who really changed my life. Uh, I j actually just had him on uh, the podcast. Those He and his partner for the Black Donnellys, the co-creators of the show, were nominated for an Academy Award for Crash. Okay. So the show was staffing up and starting production while, you know, the Academy Awards were looming off in the not-so-far-off distance. So... I met this guy at Priscilla's in uh, yeah in, uh, in Burbank yeah, yeah. in Toluca Lake yeah exactly, and so I didn't know him he didn't know me and we meet and he starts I just tell people kind of where I'm from what I'm about, and he goes well kid I was a teamster in New York, and I go really and it was the first like blue collar <clears throat> guy that I had met that like really kind of like bootstraps grinded it out he starts telling me the sacrifice and how long 25 years he's been in this business up down and then finally now things are coming together for him you know and i'm like wow man this is so this is a guy like me you know so he says to me kid if you can write like you talk you got a job and i go oh okay man thank you god that's great so he's like i'm gonna read you and i all right so i remember going to a payphone because my cell phone had been shut off and i call my wife collect and i go I think this guy's legit. I go, if he likes the work, I think he's going to offer me a job. I feel a lot of people BS out here, but this guy seems like a straight shooter to me. 
sure enough, a week later, I get the call. I got, and it, you know, the, one of the best moments in my life was um, my wife was working at a, at a at a hotel job, and her boss was kind of mean to her, and <laughs> I got to go in there and go. Tell them you're done. See that that see that's great. That's you know, and so it, it just makes you. It's like when my girlfriend moved out here. She had, she was going to move out here anyway, and she hated her job, and she'd been there. And and they were cool, you know. I mean, I, I played their Christmas party, and you know, I got paid a nice money playing their Christmas party, and I was like, all right. And um, but yeah, she came home crying one day, and I was just like, you know, you plan to move here in January. And I said, you know what, we're, we'll be fine. Just go give you two weeks, and you move out on my when I turn fifty at the end of October. So she did it, and then it's just yeah, it's just that great feeling because yeah. you're like, and it's it's almost like, and it changes their life. And for her, it was like moving. And I remember because it was this rainy day, and I just taken the red eye, and I I felt I can never sleep on planes. I don't know why I would take the red eye, but I'm sitting there, <laughs> and I guess she got in an argument at work, and she left for a little bit, and she comes in. I, I wake up, and it's dark out because it's pouring rain, and she's looking at me crying, and I'm like, oh my god, I must have slept <laughs> until five o'clock at night. And it's yeah, it's a great feeling. So you got that. So that was a black Donald. Yeah, that was a black Donald. Now, now was it? I hear a lot of times from comics like uh, Rich Schneider said when he wrote for Roseanne or whatever. It's when you're a comic who's been performing a lot, getting into the writer's room is hard because all of a sudden it's discipline. Before it's like you know comics we can hang yeah, around, yeah. right? But what was that like for you? I mean, being that you were a truck driver and you probably worked hard, you probably the discipline was quite easy because you're probably a disciplined worker. But was it was it different because you're coming from the comedy thing or? Well, I I I didn't even. I knew I prob unless I was writing in a comedic scene that it was an entirely different thing. I didn't tell anybody that I was a comedian. I didn't tell anybody that I was an actor. I kept my mouth shut and I, you know, I showed up early and I stayed late. I didn't try to jock the, you know, do any jokes or be on in the room cuz I I'm the type of comic where I hate that other comic. Like oh, if yeah. you're always on, I want to slap the hell out of you. It's just like take it easy. We're not like it's the blue collar thing. Like, I don't remember hanging out with any of my friends after work and them talking about work. Work was work. Say, so my father was like that. My father would always say, you know, because my mom, you know, was in marketing research and but her parents were, she was from immigrants. I mean, the real house she ended up being a market research manager. I mean, she graduated college in 1952 with a degree in marketing, which there was no wow. other women in her class. But her parents were right off the boat from Austria and Yugoslavia, knowing the bar. But my, she'd be start talking about work. My dad would be the same way. He's like, you leave work at work, and then you come home, you come home. Yeah, and so when comics are on, to me, it's like you're trying to bring work into a non-work situation. <laughs> right. It's just like, hang, be yourself. And it's very difficult for some people to do that. So I I didn't, I, I'd never tried to crack any jokes in the room. I mean, I would, you know, just, I'm like, I'm gr this is the work. You know, I got a two-year-old at the house, and I'm writing, and let's do this. So it really, like... I divided the two, and then when I went and I did shows, I didn't think about the dramatic right. stuff that I had done during the day, you know? Now, what was it like? This is your first show, and it gets canceled. Yeah. And after, what, a season, or? No, it's like 13. They shot 13, and then that was it. So what is that like? Because all of a sudden, you're sitting there, and you're in this high thing, and you're yeah. like, oh, well, this is great. And then I always, you know, with, with actors and writers, it's always like you have to scramble. I mean, did you know the cancellation was coming? Were you prepared for it or you weren't sure? There, there were rumors of it. I mean, we kind of, it was between us and Friday Night Lights, okay. which had just premiered. And I and I remember thinking, you know, four homicidal brothers from New York or football. Yeah. I wonder who's going to win this fight. <laughs> Texas football, even. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know? yeah. So I'm like, I see the writing on the wall. But it was really scary because that's the next thing. A lot of times people can get, a break but then the second break never comes it's like a one-off it's like a well we just did didn't work out you know maybe it's not the right thing for you 
So I went through another staffing season, didn't get anything. And I'm like, oh, that's it. You know, I got a taste of it and it's time to go home. And then I met on Law and Order SVU. And I met um, like December, the first week of December. And I th- and, and the meeting went so well with one guy. He goes, I'm taking you down the hall. Well, that, that, that had been on already, though. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that, that was in its sixth okay. season. So this is 2007. So he says, I'm going to take you down the hall to meet the showrunner. And I go, wow, yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. So we go down, I meet him, and he's like, all right, great. Nothing. And I'm thinking, wow, that was crazy. That was one of the best meetings I've ever had in my life. Nothing all December. Then January 6th, I get a a, a call from my agent. Uh, You got the job. Uh, They need you to start in three days. They're sending over 44 scripts in the last two seasons on DVD. You got to read everything, watch everything, and be ready to work. I'm like, wow, couldn't believe it. Just, you know, that's, that's Hollywood, you know, it, it looks like it's not going to happen. Then it does happen. Or it looks, the, it's a, a thousand different possibilities. You just got to worry about what you're capable of doing it to the top of your ability. And, and for me, I got to be humble. I know a lot of people, they like to use the ego and add it. And that, and that works for them. It, it never worked for me. <laughs> people are like, well, this guy's a jerk. It just and that was way way early in my career where I thought oh if you're in show business that's how you have to act right and that it never worked for me so so that show that show shoots out here shoots, in, it, shoots in New York that's it that's writes it. out here the post production oh, writes out here, out here. Okay, now so. it doesn't write out here anymore now it writes in New York it shoots in New York and the post production facilities are out here because there's Law and Order SVU Chicago Fire and Chicago PD all have the same post production facilities so you didn't have to move which is a good thing I didn't and I got to go to New York which was an, which is amazing now what would happen they would send you out there for a few days or how would that work yeah like, you, you would pr- write your episode and then you would produce it all through it was a three week process so you do um, eight days of prep so a week and a half of prep and then eight days to shoot all in New York so you're, you're as a staff writer you're part of casting location scouting everything like I just learned how to be a producer because of Neil Bear and Peter Jankowski and the Dick Wolf camp but just like go feet on the ground in New York learn how to do this it was incredible now didn't you get nominated for some kind of award uh, for one of your scripts for Law and Order yeah I got nominated for I got nominated for an Alma award which is crazy and now, I, what, I what, a, what I, is an Alma award it's a, it means uh, soul it, it's a um, it's a how can I how can I describe it it's it's um it's such a it was such a beautiful thing. It was at the giant Pasadena Auditorium, and um, it recognizes uh, artistic achievement in film, music, and television for Latino artists. So it was just it was um, Rick, Rick, Rick Najera has been nominated for them, I believe. Too. What's that? Rick Najera. I think so. Yeah. Now, now I got a question. So, so the. the one you wrote. Now, yeah. how does how does that work? Like, I always, you always see like written by a story by or whatever. Mm-hmm. How do, how does it work that you're all writing and I'm sure you all add to the step? Do they sit there and say to you, okay, this is your episode, or do you sit there and just pitch and go, I have an idea for an episode? How does someone come about writing from all the right? There's a big staff, right? You're, how many writers were in the staff? Well, small. There were six for Law okay. and Order for you. So how does it come that you let's say they do they come to you and say, hey, 
here, give us. They can. You can say there's an area like one time they said we we like this area of uh, wildlife smuggling of endangered animals. It's a multi-million dollar. So I saw that episode. I've seen them all. Yeah, yeah. So that I wrote that. <laughs> okay. So they brought me. Then that also to that point, it may have changed. Now was also the the hi- highest costing episode uh, okay. in Law and Order. Because <laughs> the animals and the stuff. Animals. It was totally <laughs> insane. Totally insane. Um, so, and also, uh, Benson and Stabler kiss in that episode. So a lot of people, um, they call, they're called EO shippers for relationshippers. Uh, Elliot and Olivia, they were like the, the fan fiction blew up from that. So there were all these cool, like levels of nuance to the show and the people that watch the show, but you know, Black Donnelly's had a writer's room. So there's a whole room full of people, starting with me on the low end, the staff writer at the time, up to the co-executive or executive producers who drive the creative vision of the show. There'll they'll be um, a cork board with um, uh, index cards or dry erase board, and you'll do what's called break story in the room, and then you'll develop the, 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 the macro story, the micro story, the character arcs for the episode, and then you'll be assigned by the showrunner the episode to go off to write a story area. And um, to write a story area and um, then an outline and then the actual episode. On Law & Order SVU, there was no writer's room. So you were responsible to just be in the writer's room or not to to be in your office, come up with all of that stuff on your own unless you were assigned like in that one example I gave you of the, the wildlife episode come up with interesting stories, character arcs, nuance, then you would go, and in my case, I would pitch Amanda Green, who was a co-executive producer and kind of my mentor on the show. She would go, you know what, Neil might like this or this, tweak that. Then we'd bring in the showrunner, and I would pitch him the board, and he'd go, I like it, go to outline. And then you would just have to write the outline. He'd give you notes on that, say go to script. You'd go to script, then he'd give you notes on that, and then you go writer's draft, producer's draft, and then various colors through production. See, it's just a, such a it's a cool process. So you left you left, uh, you left the uh, Law and Order. You go you yeah. How many read, you wrote? Three years, four three, years. Three three seasons of Law and Order, seven episodes. Okay, so then then you and I know down your career you were uh, in Breakout Kings. Yeah, which you know. It, well, I went to Detroit one eighty seven. Right. Then I went to Breakout Kings. That was such a good show. Breakout Kings? Yeah, it was oh, one of those things. Yeah. It, was, it had such a good cast, and my girlfriend had found it, and I was like, you know, I don't watch TV. She watches TV all the time. And I started watching it, and it, it was just, it was fun, but it was serious, because there was such a, it's a great idea. And the people, I mean, the cast was great. That one guy who's, he always, he always plays a freaky looking guy. I can't think of his name. He was the- uh, Jimmy Simpson? Yeah. Oh, he yeah. was great. I mean, just he, you know, see, he sees it in so many things. But how does that feel like when you're, you know, when you're on a show, and you and you know it's good, and it's got that sort of that niche following. Yeah. How does it feel? When, does it really piss you off when it gets canceled? Because oh, yeah. you sit there and go, it's like it's not like if you're writing schlock. You know, I can see if someone's yeah, writing yeah. like, oh well, family. Then matters, that goes on canceled. for fifteen yeah. years. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. That's what I say. But for that, it was such a good show. What do you, I mean, as a writer and someone involved, does it just irritate you? you go, man, just are people? Do you think people are dumb or what do you? Well, you, I've been on shows. I, I I haven't really been on a show where people were really mean or, you know, you hear these nightmare stories. I haven't really had that experience yet. So each show that hasn't, that went down was heartbreaking because 220 people are losing their jobs. Right. Um, and you know, it's like we just said, you know, you look at other shows and you go, man, that's, that's, that's nothing. Like they're not, they're not doing anything to really push the envelope. They're not doing anything. And it's not even necessarily about pushing the envelope, but they're not really digging deep. They're just kind of, Clearly, not phoning it in, but you know, just making it kind of average, and they're happy with that. So, and I'm, and I, and I preface that by saying, you know, not every show that I've been in has, you know, pushed 
to the city. Just the reason why I give all those different examples is I think you could drive yourself nuts if you start trying to figure that out because it's chaos math. Why some shows go, why some shows don't, what gets renewed, what doesn't. Yeah, look at uh, look at Christopher Maloney's show, Surviving Jack. Yeah, exactly. That show is hysterical. Ex- yes. I mean, I was sitting there going, and he's great. I was just like, this show Maloney's is funny. so talented. And it was so good because it was like, that was in the 90s, and I love the Goldbergs. That was the 80s. And, you know, the Wonder Years was like the set. And so it was like, yeah. it, was a, it was a great show to watch. When I heard it got canceled, I'm like, well, of course it's getting bad ratings. You're following a half an hour American Idol yeah. show, which no one's watching American Idol anymore. Yeah, well, I, well, you know, Detroit 187 was probably the highest reviewed show I've ever been a part of. Five stars across the board. The reviews were amazing. But the it, the, it came after Dancing with the Stars. So, and due to no fault of ABC, they, they had a hit show, Dancing with the Stars. I think it's still a hit for them. So just tone-wise, it's difficult to go from such a kind of lighthearted, fun show to kind of the intense show that Detroit 187 was. So it made it made sense maybe to move it. I, I don't know. That's, that's out of my pay grade. But um, what I've learned from all of that is that, um, one, obviously it's part of the business, so you got to have kind of a thick skin, and two is don't let that make you gun-shy for your next opportunity. Remain just as bold, remain just as committed and as enthusiastic. Push yourself just as much as you would if it was your first job, because if you start thinking, well, this might get canceled, and I don't know, you're gonna, it's going to affect your writing, it's going to affect your, your um, deportment around the people that you're working with, and especially now that I'm in more of a leadership role, I have to. Right. I can't really show that to anybody because I. We want the best work out of everybody. We want everybody to have fun when they come to work and not constantly be worried whether they're going to lose their job or not. Well, you know what's funny is because you do stand up and you look at your your the writing jobs you do. And now, I, like Breakout Kings was a little more lighthearted and necessary roughness, which my girlfriend loves. And that was is that canceled? Yes. Okay, my girlfriend loved that show. That's more lighthearted. Yeah, but you yeah. see like Ironside and the Mob Doctor, and now you're doing Chicago Fire. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going over to PD on June 2nd. So it's like, it's just so weird because you, I mean, you really you really have to put your head in from like, and you're sitting <laughs> going, okay, okay, necessary, okay, I don't have to write as intense, and then boom, Ironside. And, you, yeah, and yeah. it's like, wait a second, I have to, I have to change. I mean, and, and doing the, as you're also being a comic, I mean, have you ever tried to get into the sitcom world or are you just happy yeah, with no, dramas? No, no, I, I, I think I'm at a point now where, and it's funny because the business i think is just opening enough now to where they go well maybe you can write half i remember clearly having a conversation with my agent where she said you know everybody only knows you as a comedian you have no idea how difficult it's going to be for you to become a dramatic writer because that's what i told her i wanted to do and now i'm having the i said do you understand the irony of the conversation because she'll be like you know everyone only knows you as a drama writer and i'm like do you understand the irony of what the conversation that we're having and ultimately at the end of the day it's up to me i have to write and create something that warrants the buyer's time and again the stars have to line up the buyer has to be looking for something like that and even if it's just funny then to me i know well i wrote something funny and i enjoy it whether it sells or not it's a completely different puzzle to to, to put together you know so now do you do you con- i mean you're constantly writing on these shows now do they come to you or do you have to write a spec for them then? oh yeah i had to write a new spec this year and which i i was really happy that i did um and yeah and i'm working on another spec another one hour spec right now another half hour spec and I'm putting together a one-hour show that I'm doing in Chicago, um, a live show, you know, a new of, of all stand-up. So I'm constantly writing, constantly performing. So you're doing an hour show, an hour stand-up show. Yeah. Okay. Now, where do you already know where you're going to perform? Yeah, or? it's going to be uh, the Subterranean. Uh, let me look at my calendar here because I gave the wrong date out the other day, but it's uh, I believe. Let me just be 100 percent sure here. 
Okay. Saturday, July 12th. An hour. I'm doing two shows. I think it's going to be a 6 p.m. and an 8 p.m. I know for sure an 8 p.m., but you can go to mickbetancourt.com uh, to subscribe to the... There's like a little mailing list that'll go out based on where you live. I don't I don't bug anybody. You got to leave the city that you live in. So if you're right. in Illinois, I'll, I'll give you an email blast. You could follow me on Twitter at mickbetancourt, but it's going to be two shows. There's this great show in Chicago called The Blackout Diaries, and it's like the moth storytelling show, but just for crazy drinking stories. I've heard of that. Okay. Yeah, so Sean Flannery does it, and they do it at uh, the Lincoln Lodge, which moved from the Lincoln Restaurant over to Subterranean, which is this cool like punk rock live music venue. So I'll be doing two shows there, but just one hour of my craziest drinking stories because I've been sober now for 12 years. So sometimes I'll do those stories in my act, but I'm like, it's been 12 years. Like, why am I talking about this? Right. So I'm going to put them all to bed that night, two shows, and then I'm going to record it. So if you can't come out to the show, go to the website, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it available as a free download. See, that's cool. That's yeah. good. That's good. So that's, I'm, I'm trying to do more of the storytelling through my trips to the hospital throughout my life. <laughs> just weird trips. Because it's like, it's a thing. You sit there, and I got to a point where it's like, you get, you get tired of doing bits. Like For yeah, me, yeah. I tweet a lot of jokes. I don't I don't use this. People go, you should use this in Iraq. I'm like, no. Not the same thing, you know, yeah. they're, I, I, they're just jokes that come off stupid. They're stupid. I mean, yeah. I, my whole thing I call creative stupidity. That's my production <laughs> thing. But I'm like, I don't. I don't want to do them my joke, and, and it's just it's weird how you you develop as a uh, a performer and a writer. So this is your first recording. Is this your first big hour special? Or uh, yeah, I mean it's weird. I've had the comics curse where I've had two shows at the Friars Club here in L.A. packed. There's like 600 people that came out. It's just weird window in time where like I was the it guy this was like oh, I don't know like seven years ago like just people were I was drawn and in, in LA it was coming out and I'm like I'm gonna record this I had a guy bring out a dat system and mic the audience and the dat was broken internally we lost the whole set I'm like Man. well it's just not in the cut the universe is clearly well, telling you, me you, know, you need to write about murder yes yeah, exactly <laughs> well you know what's funny about that I remember I used to take I used to have one of those old little Sony cameras when I was on the road and I would tape and whenever you tape your set like you wouldn't always tape it but it was always you always like you didn't have you wouldn't tape that set when there's only like 18 people in the audience you tape it when it's 100 and you have a good set but when there's 18 people in the audience you sit there and you have like they're the coolest 18 people ever and you're like one of the yeah, best yeah, sets yeah, yeah. and you walk off going why didn't I, I record that because that would be a much better audition tape anyone in front of a full house I always say like, you've been to the ice house I'm sure oh yeah, yeah. well no the clubs won't take tapes from the ice house yeah, but I'm saying, exactly yeah. I say I tell people like I, I do I do every once in a while there and you're in the main room my feeling is if you do comedy and you go up and you don't get laughs or like at least two applause breaks when the room's full. You should not be in comedy because that room, I don't know what they do. I think they just feed them like funny juice. The people walk in, the crowds oh, are, are amazing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> where else? what else is coming up for shows? Where can people see you in L.A.? Uh, let's see, in L.A., let me... Now, you go on the road at all or no? No, I wish I did more of the road. I'm actually, because of the podcast, so if you, if you, you know, if you want to check out the podcast, it's the Mick Betancourt Show. You can get it on iTunes or Stitcher. You can go to mickbetancourt.com, and you could stream every episode. The whole catalog's up on the site. And I'm going to be... That's really allowed me to establish this really cool relationship with the audience. So when I do shows in town, they show up. I just did a show at Radford on Saturday, and we had a couple cats from the podcast. Well, not a couple. It was, a, it was amazing. So um, let's see. Where's the flapper show here? Is this the most interesting radio ever? Cooper that we're doing right now as I, I sift it. through my kids. Oh, that's great. I said, no, people like it. We, we only have a minute left anyway, so I hate 
uh, Sunday, June 22nd at 9 p.m. I'll be at Flappers. Right. Uh, reach out to me uh, on the website, and I'll get you some comps. Cool. I may come out. Anyway, awesome, thank man. you for coming on. It was great to meet yeah, you. Yeah, man. And, uh, yeah, people, so check them out. Also, <laughs> here's what you do. You follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. I'm always posting uh, fun stuff. Or you send me an email, cooper at indie100.com. You can uh, talk to me. Tell me what guests you want to see. See here. Also, uh, uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have about 255 episodes up there. Go to, uh, if you have an Android app, a phone, go to the Google Play Store. There's a Cooper Talk app. Play, pop that in. You can hear on my phone, my shows that way. iTunes, Stitcher, Cooper Talk, one word. Also, don't forget Thursday, May 29th, me and John Kapalos there at Bob's Espresso on Lancashire in uh, NoHo. It's going to be a great show. It's going to be an hour conversation that he might play a song for his new album. And it's all going to be fun. Uh, next week, my guest, uh, character actor Richard Portnow and from Dateline NBC, Josh Mankiewicz. Um, keep listening to Cooper Talks. Please email me because I like to hear what you have to say. Follow me on Twitter. Remember, don't forget, drink your water, take your vitamins, eat your vegetables. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Have a wonderful Memorial Day. <laughs>